Welcome to the CU20 Podcast. We are a group of young Christians living in Montreal, talking about our Christian faith and following Jesus in the world today. Today's podcast is a sermon from Luke 13. Jesus speaks about suffering and calls us to avoid naive assumptions, rather to turn our attention to what is most important. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look look for fruit, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig, it or I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So just as we get started, I want you to think back about some big news events that have happened in the last sort of couple months to, let's say, six to eight months from, from today. What are some that come to mind, some big stories that you can remember that have, that have come up in the news and have occurred in the world? Just shout them out. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. Kobe. Kobe dying, yeah. Australia. Yeah, the, the fires in Australia, yeah. Yeah, plane crashes. Anything else? Via rail. Well, that's pretty, yeah. CN rails, strikes, yeah. Well, not strikes, uh, protests. Yeah, a, a lot of speak, a lot of talk about climate change. Yes, Syrian war continuing to go on and on and on and on and on. What else? A lot of persecution of Christians. A lot of persecution of Christians. It's the um, school shootings, mosque shooting in New Zealand. What else? Notre Dame Cathedral burned down. Mm-hmm. Amazon burned down. Well, part of it did. What's that? The volcano in New Zealand, yeah. Even today in Montreal, there was a 100-car pileup, 69 people injured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the South Shore. Happened today. The world is full of brokenness, isn't it? There's so much uh, pain, uh, so much unanswerable questions out there as well it's it's really overwhelming and those are on like a global scale you, you can bring it down and down and down to a national and then a you know provincial and then local scale there's always these heartbreaking situations that are coming up again and again every single day all of these kinds of awful things that are happening and in the face of incidences of barefaced evil like shootings and and different awful abuse that that we see spoken of in the in the news and corruption and in the face of just tragic events and catastrophes 
natural disasters, it's natural for us to try to grapple to find answers, to look at these situations and try to try to make sense of it, try to bring some order to it, to what, what's going on in this world? Why is the, the world the way that it is? And we see in this passage that that um, instinct within us to try to find answers and the prevalence of, of you know, many, many examples we can point to of, of real evil going on in the world is nothing new. We see the followers of Jesus coming to him, telling him about uh, this awful thing and it's a really puzzle as to what exactly they're talking about here, but at the very least, what we, know, what we know about Pilate is that he was not a friend of the Jews at all. He was, we know this from extra-biblical accounts, uh, you know, outside of the Bible, different historical accounts of Pilate. He was no friend to the Jews. He would do awful things. He would disregard their religion. He would kill people uh, for very petty reasons. Uh, and so we see in this thing, something's happened where people, Galileans, pilgrims to Jerusalem have been killed. At, at the very least, they've been killed whilst in the temple, whilst during worship. And so in some way, their blood has been spilled in the place where the blood of the sacrifice is spilled too. It could have been even worse than that. It could have been some incredibly uh, disgusting type of thing where their, their blood was literally rubbed on some kind of ceremonial thing or some uh, part of the altar. We, we don't know. There's no uh, outside source that, that tells us more about this. But it's awful. Whatever it is, it's gut-wrenchingly awful. Jesus looks at that and he looks again at another example uh, of a situation that we might think of today as something, you know, like, one of those things that just happens, you know, like this tragic event that can't explain it, like some kind of building collapse that happens. And we see the stuff happening around the world today. There was, you know, bridge collapses that happen or, you know, earthquakes and uh, these types of disasters that you look at, you think, well, there's no rhyme or reason to it. This, these things just happen and they're awful when they do. And in this particular tower that collapses, 18 people are killed instantly. And the the people of that time would have been grappling for answers just like, just like we would be today. And a common answer of that time was to look at these types of uh, atrocities and think that the root cause of it was some kind of personal sin. That if you were the victim of some really ugly circumstance, it's because of some kind of sin that is, uh, that's being punished in your life. Uh, and so this is why they, they bring this case to Jesus and they say, these Galileans. What do you think about it? The connection here could possibly be because we see previously in the book of Luke that Jesus has uh, pronounced woe upon certain cities within Galilee. We've actually looked at that together in one of the sermons uh, we've had together. Where he pronounces woe against certain Galilean cities. Uh, and so it might be that these people are coming to him and saying, look, Galileans, the people that you have previously said, you know, the judgment of God is coming. This has happened to them. And in an attempt to try to bring these two ideas together, is this the judgment that you uh, were speaking of? Is this what you said was going to happen? Are we starting to witness uh, the outpouring of God's wrath? And Jesus takes a situation. He says, no, this is not what you think it is. And he goes on and he says, you know, do you think they were especially sinful? No. He then uses the example of the tower. He says, look at these people who died in this tower collapse. Do you think they were especially sinful? No. 
Jesus rejects this notion of connecting personal sin to uh, atrocities that happen in a person's life. At least he rejects it as the, the quick assumption that would, that would be, take place. The interesting picture that the Bible gives when it comes to dealing with sin and suffering in this world, the answer really is it's complicated. Yes, there are times in the Bible where, we can, where the Bible points to things happening in a person's life, bad, wicked suffering that's happening as a direct result of their sin, and a direct result of God bringing punishment into their life. But it's not that simple. Jesus shows it's not a, a, a very simple equation to follow. He denounces the idea that you, you can just look at someone in suffering and say, and essentially, they deserve it. They've done something that has brought them to this place, either them or their family, whatever. They deserve it. Jesus rejects that idea. Not only does he reject it here, but he rejects it quite famously in John chapter 9, where he is, he's kind of, someone brings his attention to a blind man. And the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus rejects the notion entirely that it was sin that caused this. And, and interestingly, people think that he... He's saying that the reason this happened is that God might be glorified. And I'm not rejecting that answer, but I'm saying there's actually a little more to it than that. When you actually read literally what Jesus says, without any punctuation breaks, this is what his, his reply is. Jesus replied, Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the work of God may be revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the works of him who sent me while the day is coming. Uh, <clears throat> when no one, uh, sorry, let me start that again. I messed that up. Jesus replied, Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the work of God may be revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, where no one will be able to work. We add, there's little clauses that are added when you, when you bring it across into the English translation that make it sound like uh, he's saying, it's not, sin is not the cause of this, but the cause of this is God, so that God may be glorified. He, he actually doesn't point to a cause at all. He says, this isn't, a, this isn't a result of sin, but so that God is glorified, let's do this work. That's, kind, that's literally what he says. So Jesus doesn't point to an answer whatsoever when it's called the cause of the suffering, a cause of this catastrophe uh, in this place. He doesn't point to a cause either. He just rejects our, the offhanded idea that this is, this is caused by sin. And we may look at that and think, well, we don't really believe that today. But yes, we do. At the core of who we are, we still have this notion of good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And, and that kind of basic, very unwise, uh, shallow truth rears its ugly head when we find ourselves in suffering. Because when we find ourselves in suffering, what we cry out is, God, it's not fair. I don't deserve this. What is happening to me, uh, this shouldn't be. I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. And so we, we betray ourselves to see that actually we still hold on to this notion that if I'm good, I deserve good. And if you're bad, you deserve bad. And that's just the flat truth of it. The Bible rejects that notion. It's it's not balanced, it's not fair, it's not a wise view. And when you look at the Bible as a whole, to try to find a full answer to explain suffering and pain in this world, we actually find the Bible doesn't give a complete answer as to why. 
The Bible wrestles with the idea of pain with us. The Bible is actually all about what God is doing about pain and suffering in this world, what He's doing with evil in this world. But it doesn't seek to give us an intellectually satisfying answer that will somehow do what? Like help us sleep better at night, help us to, to I mean, if you really think about it, we don't need an intellectual answer, even though that, that why question burns within us. I think that even if we were to get an answer, it wouldn't satisfy because that question doesn't rest in a place of rationality. It rests in a place of deep emotion. We cry out with that question, why? Why is this happening? And so instead of giving us uh, a theological uh, like sort of thesis as to why there is pain in this world, the Bible gives us hope. That's what the Bible seeks to give us in the face of pain. In the face of suffering and catastrophe and calamity in this world, the Bible doesn't seek to give us a satisfactory answer. It seeks to give us a whole supportive hope. A hope that can help us. A hope that we are not alone. A hope that God is not done with this world. And the form of that hope comes in the shape of the cross. And I forget who said it, but there was some old pastor who once said, you know, all of us have this big question mark that is on our heart, but over the question mark, God stamps a cross. That we see the cross and it helps us deal with that question mark that we feel inside us. We don't need an answer. What we need is presence. We need someone to be with us in the pain, and that is what God gives us. And that's a truth that we're going to touch upon again when we're wrapping up the sermon. But I don't want to betray where Jesus does take this discussion because he doesn't use the discussion to just reject that, but to instead supplant a different idea into the minds of his followers to help them to, to react rightly in this situation. Jesus brings a sharp challenge out of these events. He points to these events and he, and he, he says that, the, their fate, the fate of these people who have suffered these things, uh, can serve to warn us, showing us our own mortality, showing us our own vulnerability, and in that giving us, again, an illustration of the urgent need that we all have to repent, to come to God. That is, if we allow it to, one of the, one of the great... I don't want to use a strong word here, one of the great maybe strengths, silver linings, something like that, of catastrophe when it happens is that often it shows us how vulnerable we are. It shows us how needy we are. It helps us come face to face with the deeper issues. It clears the fog away that so often blinds us to what is really going on in this world where we just go about our sort of, you know, our happy-go-lucky life, not really thinking about uh, vulnerability or what's coming next or death or anything like that. We just kind of go about life and when we're met face-to-face -face with evil or we're met face-to-face -face with, with death and a sudden, quick, violent death, we, we pause. You know, the clouds lift, we see with clarity again. And if you ask Pastor Ken, that is what brought him to Christ. It was a death in his family that brought him uh, to that sharp reality that he, 
He wasn't ready to die. He didn't know what came next and he needed to know. And so that's what drove him to seek out answers and, and eventually come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So often, Jesus is presented and shared in this world as someone who doesn't bring any kind of challenge to us, who never speaks of judgment. The, the Jesus that is admired in this world today is one who is just kind of about love and peace and, you know, and everyone coming together and, and being a nice, happy family. But that's an unbalanced view of Jesus. Jesus is incredibly loving and, and, you know, is the Prince of Peace, but at the same time, He brings sharp rebuke. He brings uh, serious challenge and stern warnings that we need to heed and pay attention to. We cannot settle for a Jesus that avoids these uncomfortable topics. Jesus is speaking here of the genuine and urgent need that we all have to repent. And the reason that he can speak of this is because he holds to the basic truth that the Bible teaches, which is that there is a universality of sinfulness among all people. That there is a pervasive brokenness to us all that needs to be acknowledged rightly if we are to come into right community with God. And unless we're willing to acknowledge that, confess it, and come to God with humbleness and brokenness, we are, no, we are not close to Him, and we will die in that state and face separation from Him. We are all sinners. That is Jesus' worldview. He states it quite clearly here. That these people were no, sin, no more sinful than any of the others. He says, Do you think that they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. He is speaking to all people and saying, that is the state that you live in. You are a sinful person and you need to repent. We all need to turn to God. The, the call to repent is timeless. And this, this idea flows counter to our heart's attitude about ourselves, to our cultural attitudes about ourselves and, and about the, the majority of the people that we're in contact with. We like to think that people are generally good, that there are bad people in this world and there's brokenness that we all carry for sure, but the way that we diagnose the problems that we have is far less severe than the way that God does. When we look inwardly, we see the problems within there, but we think they're not a big deal. Yeah, whatever, like it's, it's, it's no big deal. But the God of the Bible claims that our condition is far more severe than we think, far more serious than we think. The, the way that the Bible presents it is that we are separated from God, that we are, we are not close to Him. And if we die in that state, we die separated from God. And because of that, under His wrath, we will live an eternity away from Him. This is not a mild problem that we have. You look through the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our transgressions, enemies of God. You continue to go throughout the Bible, we see that uh, in Psalm uh, 14 and in Isaiah 53, it says, all have gone astray. All have gone astray. In Romans chapter 3, it says, none are righteous. There is nobody righteous before God. Uh, and in Psalm 51, we talk, it talks about being sinful from birth. That even from the very beginning, this is who we are. We are born in sin. John 15 says, apart from, Jesus is saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. In, uh, in Romans chapter 8, 
uh, oh man, I can't read my own writing here, sorry. <laughs> it says, living according to the flesh cannot please God. Uh, there is nothing about our lives, nothing about our abilities that can possibly bridge this gap that we have between us and God. None are righteous, none make the cut, we are all lost. And this is the state of affairs. And if it remains that way, then the effect of that is death and condemnation. That's what we face. When we stand before God, we stand before Him condemned. Uh, Stanley Grenz, really amazing uh, theologian who I, I highly admire, he says this, uh, <clears throat> We are indeed in a desperate situation. And if we remain in the darkness... So, and we remain in the darkness unless God intervenes to both restore fellowship with us and then ultimately to consummate His goal of community in the highest sense. He's saying, you know, we are lost. He goes on to say, we no longer know the world, our co-pilgrims, our Creator, even ourselves as friends, for community has given way to enmity. We stand scattered and shattered around. Like we, we are apart from each other. We are apart from God. We are apart from ourselves. That is the state that we live in. And when I look at this and I look at the teaching of the Bible uh, and I compare it to what I know of other religions' teachings out there, what I can say is I think that the Bible is, in my opinion, the only religion that treats sin seriously, that treats the holiness and perfection of God seriously. Because if we are dealing with God, God who by the definition God must be the ultimate, most perfect being, and we look at our lives, and they're at best a mixed bag of, mixed bag of good and bad, you know, eh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we say that's good enough to be accepted by this ultimate being. No. Why? Why on earth would you think that? Why would you think that this being would, could possibly accept that? But Christianity says, no, your best is not good enough. Whatever you can muster up will not uh, be enough. It takes seriously sin. It takes seriously the holiness of God. I'm reminded of a book I read, and it was, it was a book that was accounts of different people's uh, like sort of life story and the way that they kind of came into contact with the gospel. And the one story in there was telling a story of a man who had been an incredibly abusive person, an awful absentee, an abusive father, a neglectful uh, spouse, an abusive spouse, just, an, just a horrible man. Uh, and he had come, come down with some kind of sickness and he's in hospital and he's dying. And, and at that point, he calls in this pastor, the pastor that is writing this book, uh, and, and the pastor sits down and doesn't know him, kind of gets his call out of the blue from this guy he doesn't know and says, I need to speak to a pastor, would you come? And so he comes and he sits down with this guy, and this guy basically starts to talk about his life, saying like, you know, I need to, I've done this and I've done that and blah, 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 and I, I, I know that I'm about to die, so I want to make amends, I want to make it right. Uh, so what do I do? And this pastor was like, you can't. Like, what are you talking about? Make it right. What, what on earth do you expect you going to be able to do that will possibly be able to, to heal or make up for a, a lifetime of sinfulness the way that you have, a lifetime of abuse and brokenness that you have brought upon the people that you were supposed to protect uh, and cherish? There's nothing you can do but fall upon the mercy of God. Nothing at all. And that was a, a really convicting moment for me when I really kind of got in a new way the state that we all kind of are in. 
if we, can th we think we can somehow make it in God's eyes, we think we're going to be good enough uh, to, to kind of cut the, uh, to just get in maybe, but we'll never be able to make amends for what we've done. We'll never be able to make up for the, the, the sins that we've committed or the, the ways that we've ignored God. And He's perfect. His standard is perfection. There's nothing we can do but fall upon His mercy. We are not quite good, just in need of a, a helpful guide to get through life. We are completely lost and in need of an all-sufficient Savior. That is the way that we find ourselves. And Jesus is saying, you won't escape unless you repent. And when Jesus brings us, He brings it with a sense of urgency. And whenever He speaks of repentance, He speaks about it with a sense of urgency. It's all or nothing. It's now. And we can understand the urgency here in this passage, partly because we, we see, as these stories illustrate, this world is a hostile, unpredictable place. You think that, you know, I'll get to it tomorrow. What if you don't have tomorrow? You know, what if that is, that's no guarantee. We have no guarantee that tomorrow will come. Just take a breath. <sighs> that was a gift from God. Amen. Like, you didn't deserve that breath. That was His continuing mercy upon you, as each breath is to you. Continuing mercy of God. And He also speaks of the urgency because He, he rejects this idea that people, will, people would come to Him and have this idea of like, I want to follow you, but first I just want to go and do this, or I want to do this, but I'm not ready to give up that. And Jesus would not accept that. He wouldn't accept that type of devotion. And the reason for it fundamentally is because if you have the attitude of like, yes, I get the importance of it, but I'm just a little bit busy right now, so I'll get to it later. If that's your, that's your attitude, that the attitude of like, yeah, it's on my to-do list. I'll get to that repenting thing in a while. You don't get it. Like even if you say you get it, you don't. If you, if you say, okay, I'll get to it later, I understand and I'll get to it later, the fact that you say that shows that you don't understand. And, if you, if the fact, and because you don't understand, you won't get to it later. You won't. Because there will always be another thing ahead of it. Always be something else to kick it down the road. And the nature of sin is the longer you stay in it, the, longer, the, the more its, its grips come upon you and pull you down. And, and you, know, you don't... You think maybe a deathbed confession or some kind of like, once I get through this stage of life, then I'm going to do... No. That's foolish. It's, uh, you don't get it. You really don't get it. The call of Jesus was to repent and to truly repent. That could be the only right response to the gospel message that he brings. To, to come, to confess, to, to repent, uh, which, which we're going to cover in a moment, but it means to turn away from one kind of life to turn towards a life is following Jesus Christ faithfully. We are in this passage being confronted uh, by these, these uh, catastrophic events to our frailty and then to the by the words of Jesus we are being confronted by our sinfulness. And the only right response by when you're confronted by, by your sinfulness and your mortality is you've got to repent. You have to come to God. And repentance is that tricky word. We've used it a lot tonight. And I want to make sure that we understand what it means because we've got to get the definition right for repentance. Repentance is, is similar to faith in the sense that it's not just a mental assent, though it does certainly have that. I, I, the best I can understand, repentance has three, three uh, dimensions to it. It takes an intellectual understanding. Sin is wrong. I am a sinner. I need God. It takes an intellectual understanding, but it takes an, 
on top of that, an emotional appeal, a sense of sorrow about the state that our life is in, a sense of humility before God, a sense of owning our brokenness as well and, and allowing that to work and soften our hearts and rid us of our pride, letting go of the reasons we, we use to call ourselves righteous and instead to come to God and, and confess with a broken heart who we are. And the last thing it takes is a personal decision. It takes uh, a serious move in life towards God to, 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 to position your life towards following God. It takes that as well. And when we... Oh my gosh, sorry. I have a really bad pen today. It's very faded and I can't see half of what I'm writing here. This, most of this occurs inwardly. It occurs in the heart of a person. And, and just like faith... Unless it issues out in change in life, then there's no way of knowing if it's real or not. It's an inward change that produces external fruit, much like the parable of the fig tree, which we're going to touch upon in just a moment. And the, the word of, in the Old Testament that is mostly translated uh, repent is the word shub, which is my favorite word of all, shub, <laughs> S-H-U-B, shub. And it means to turn. And it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament with, within a theological context to turn, to turn away, to turn towards. Shub. That's shub, everybody. Word of the day. In the New Testament, there's two words that both carry kind of similar uh, meanings. There's a epistrepho and a metanoio. metanoio. And both of them uh, have similar meanings, and the meaning is to, to know after or to rethink, mm. uh, to change your mind or to regret. Mm. And I think that's a good, a good way of understanding what repentance is as well. It's this, this changing of your mind. The, changing, you know, the Old Testament brings in the idea of turning away. The New Testament brings in the idea of, of a shift within our thinking, a shift within our heart and, and to, to, to regret. To, to look at something and to, to feel that remorse and to turn from it as well. And this is, broadly speaking, uh, the way that the, the Bible speaks of it as well. And uh, Daryl Block says this <coughs> in regards to repentance. He says, it is a reorientation to new life. To repent is not merely to regret things we have done or to apologize for them or to recognize uh, them uh, that wrong has been committed. To repent is to agree that a, that a change in direction is required. And that's got to be the fruit of it. For it to be real, genuine, it can't just be that I apologize for what I've done, but that I agree that I need to turn away and to begin to do that, to begin to go along that way of turning around. And as we kind of simmer on that idea of turning away from living our lives the way we want to live them with no recognition for God, what are we turning to? That's important. It's important to realize that as we repent, as we turn, as we shub, <laughs> we are turning to God. And who is God? We are entering into a relationship of grace and forgiveness. We are not entering into a relationship in which we have to work at our righteousness now and work at pleasing God Otherwise, we won't make it. We enter into a relationship. Salvation is this. It's turning from sin, that's repent, to Christ. That's faith. And faith in Him. Faith in His sufficiency. Faith in His Lordship. 
we go to believe in Him. We see our desperate need and we see His abundant provision. We see both of them. And that's why faith and repentance are basically two sides of the same coin. For it to be genuine salvation, we turn away from ourselves, but we turn to the all-sufficiency of Christ as well. Uh, Louis Burkhoff uh, says this, True repentance never exists except uh, in connection with faith. While on one hand, wherever there is true, uh, where, there, where there is true faith, there is also real repentance. The two cannot be separated. They're simply com complementary parts of the same process. The repentance which is here com uh, commanded is the result of faith. It is born at the same time with faith. They are twins. And, they, and to say which is the elder born passes my knowledge. It is a great mystery. Faith before repentance is in, is in some acts and repentance before faith, before faith is, in, is in others. The fact of... Uh, the fact being that they come into the soul together. Faith and repentance come to a person together in order for that salvation to be real. Mm. And as I began with, what Jesus does in the view of suffering is that he brings us hope. And even though this, this whole passage is one that is a, a confrontational message, it is a message of hope. Is a message that God has not done with this world. It, it brings to mind the fact that though evil continues to go out into this world, it is not because God doesn't care. It isn't because God doesn't mind that there is brokenness and evil in this world. It is in fact a sign that God is merciful and that God is patient. The reason that this world continues the way that it is is because God is still ha having His hand stretched out to those who will listen to bring more and more in. That's what the parable of the fig tree is all about. It's about further patience and further work being done to bring fruitfulness to this barren fig tree. This is the patience of God. And look, <laughs> I've, uh, I bought a couple of years ago uh, blueberry bushes. Uh, I bought like six of them for $10 each. So I spent $60 on blueberry bushes. I then next, last year, bought another blueberry bush because it's on sale for like $20. So I have bought $80 worth of blueberry bushes alone. Setting aside fertilizer costs and water costs, well, we don't have paper water here, but, but like, you know, effort and time put in. Can, you, can I tell you how many blueberries I've got out of any of those seven bushes? Three. Three blueberries. <laughs> That's it. I'm so mad. I think I'm going to kill them. I know. You know, I genuinely felt convicted as I was like, uh, like researching the sermon today. I was like, because all winter I'm just thinking, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> and now today I'm like, ah, maybe one more year. <laughs> maybe I got to put some manure down and do some other stuff and whatever else. And I don't know. I'll pray about it. <laughs> But we, we see that the parable is illustrative of the heart of God. Okay, let's continue to have patience. Mm -hmm. Let's give it another try. And not only is God showing patience, but he is, he is, well, depending on how you interpret the parable, the bottom line is he's, he's, God is working on it too. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus is reaching out, working in this world, more than any of us could possibly imagine. He is bringing 
himself to us, bringing hope to us. The reason that Jesus does this and, and what he does is it's come into our situation, come into our pain to bring us out of it is because of his deep and abiding love for us, his unwillingness to let us go. This is an, just a soul-shattering truth that God comes this close and to revisit the idea of, of pain, because I think it's appropriate to, to wrap up, because I don't want to neglect the answer, to neglect the, the, the sorrow that we feel at the state of this world, and to try to bring the hope that Jesus would bring into the situation. Yes, we've been convicted by Jesus. I am your only hope. God is your only hope in this world. And you need to take that seriously. But we look to see that the, the solidness of that truth is just confounding to me, that Jesus would come into our pain with us. However you look at this world, bear in mind that God, who is by very nature immune to pain, gave up the immunity to pain to come and to suffer with us. Uh, Plandinger says this, We do not refer to the cross of Christ to explain evil. It is not as if pondering Calvary we will at last understand throat cancer. We rather lift our eyes to the cross whence comes our help in order to see that God shares our lot and therefore can be trusted. When you look at Christ, however you interpret evil, however you interpret suffering in this world, know that He bears it with you. And that makes a difference. Do you feel marginalized, ostracized, born into a situation that was unfair? Consider Jesus, born into poverty, a refugee from the time he was a toddler, scorned for his race and his ethnicity. Do you, do, you, do you feel that you have been abandoned by your friends, abandoned by your loved ones? So was he. He was abandoned by those who he cared deeply about. He understands your pain. He has felt your pain. Have you felt the loss of a loved one, a family member that has died? Have you wept for a friend who has died? So did Jesus. He weeps for Lazarus. The, on the cross, the father loses the son. The son loses the father. Have you ever felt that you are just desperate for a way out, crying, God, can there be any other way? And receiving a, a negative answer. No, there is no other way. You're stuck. Jesus has felt that as he cries out in the garden, God, any other way, any other way. And he had to keep going. Jesus has felt agony. He has felt anxiety. He has felt frustration. He has had the very worst of this world poured out upon him. And he felt it all for us so that he might identify with us and be a faithful high priest, that he might bring us hope. His death becomes the answer that God offers in the here and now for the problem of sin, saying, you may not understand, but know that I am with you. And I am with you in the most profound and deepest sense of the world. I know your pain. I share your pain with you. And because of that, he can be trusted. He was with us in the suffering offering us not just an explanation, but His presence with us as someone who understands and shares our pain. <clears throat> uh, John Stott, 
I've, I've used this quote a few times, but it's really powerful to me. He says this, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many a Buddhist temple in many Asian countries and have stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing across his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away and in my imagination have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorny pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. You know, there have been times in my life when I've really been hurting. I've really, really felt pain. You know what I needed in those times? I didn't need an answer to my pain. What I needed was someone to sit with me in it. I just needed someone to be there with me. You know, there's a, a Jürgen Moltmann <clears throat> says this, God weeps with us so that one day we might laugh with him. The great comfort I take away from my faith in Jesus Christ is that I am not alone. That this world is suffering, this world is full of brokenness, and in the midst of it all, I am not alone. And for that reason, I love him. Jesus leaves us today with a strong warning to pay attention and to consider the deep truths of this world, to not be unprepared for what is real and what is most urgent. But as he leaves us with a strong warning, he does so with an outstretched hand of grace, beckoning us to come in. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you call us to yourself, a God who is not immune to pain and suffering, a God who understands, a God who has experienced it. And in light of what you have done, it is impossible for us to say that you do not care. You do not care about this world. You do not care about evil. We know, Jesus, that you care deeply. And for that, we love you. Lord, if there is any here who has not yet repented, has not yet turned away from living their own life to living a life in light of who you are and what you have done, who has embraced you as Lord and Savior, I ask, Lord, that you would lead them on that journey and do so swiftly. We pray, Lord for everyone here today, that we might all come to know you as Lord and Savior, the only hope that we have in this world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you would like to find out more about CU20 and People's Church, look us up on Google at People's Church of Montreal. If you're ever in Montreal, we'd love to meet you. Have a good day.